coming up on Philosophy Talk. Can speech kill? Words can demean, defame, and debase, but can they cause death? Words don't kill, people do. Unlike sticks and stones, names can't even hurt. So how could they possibly kill? People talking time to pick us up. Why won't they let us be? Bricks and stones may break my bones, but talk don't bother me. Can speech create a climate in which violence is condoned and encouraged? Never underestimate the toxic power of hate speech. Should speech that is so poisonous be banned? People talking trying to pick us, yep, and they scandalize them a name. They'll say anything just to make me feel bad, yes, anything to make me shame. Win our words, a license to kill. Our guest is Lynn Terrell, author of Genocidal Language Games. Can speech kill? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. If you like Philosophy Talk, you might also enjoy podcasts from our friends at the IAI, the Institute of Art and Ideas. Check them out at iai.tv. Can mere words be used to kill? Words can hurt and offend, but can they be lethal weapons? How do we fight back when words are weaponized? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs our philosophy and literature initiative. Today we're asking, can words kill? Oh, Josh, of course not. Words don't kill. People do. And you know what? People don't even kill with words. They kill with things like bombs and guns, Josh. I'm not so sure, Ken. I, I think maybe sometimes words can be just as deadly as a, as a gun or a bomb. Oh, come on. Look, I'm going to grant you. Words can certainly hurt or offend, but they, they, can't, they can't literally kill. Well, well, think about the words that the, the Nazis used about Jews or the, the words that the Hutu used about the Tutsi. What about those? Well, well, look, I'm not denying that words can sometimes incite violence. But... Well, no, I, I'm not just talking about incitation. I'm saying that words can be instruments of violence. I mean, I mean maybe not in every case, but when it comes to genocidal killers and, and their henchmen, Words can be every bit as deadly as, as a machete. Oh, Josh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Words don't have the power to suffocate or to cut a throat. Well, words aren't killing through physical force. They're, they're killing through representational force. What? Re representational force? Well, um, think about the way that the Nazi genocide unfolded, right? I mean, it started with a kind of latent anti-Semitism. It was just uh, widespread throughout the German people at the time. But then propaganda came into the picture, and propaganda transformed Jews into mere second-class, uh, from mere second-class citizens, into a kind of category of subhuman animal. Yeah, okay, that was bad, but the actual genocide, Josh, it took more than the words. I mean, if the Nazis had stopped at the propaganda, well, then they wouldn't have been genocidal killers. Look, look, 1930s Germany was a loaded gun, right? I mean, using those words was pulling the trigger of a loaded gun. So, so in that context, using propaganda, that was committing genocide. Uh, Josh, Josh, I see your point. I see your, your metaphor of the loaded gun, but I still say that representations, words, propaganda can't be acts of genocide all on their own until somebody moves beyond representation and actually acts in the world until they wield that machete or turn that knob. They haven't yet committed 
genocide. Well, not everyone agrees with you, Ken. I mean, I mean, think about those Hutu journalists in Rwanda who who engaged in hate radio. They were found guilty of actual genocide. They, they weren't they weren't condemned for incitement or something like that. Uh, they were like aiding and abetting the people who were actually doing the killing. They were convicted of genocide. Why do you think that was? Well, I think that's because the International Tribunal for Rwanda, I'm afraid to say, was conceptually confused. No, 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 no. That tribunal recognized something really important. You don't have to wield a machete to be a killer. In the right context, it's enough to represent somebody else as a subhuman cockroach. In one case, yeah, you're committing uh, physical violence. But in the other case, you are committing representational violence. Gosh, this, uh, look, look, I know you're a literary guy, and I know you like metaphor, and I think what you're calling representational violence, that's a thing, but it's not genuine violence. It's just metaphorical violence. Well, tell that to the victims of dehumanizing language. Well, look, look, I don't, I don't by any means to downplay how dangerous this kind of language can be. Yeah, it hurts and offends. Yeah, it poisons the politics uh, of, of a community. Yeah, and, and sometimes it even gives people license, at least in their own mind, to do all manner of horrible things to one another. So it sounds like you're agreeing with me. No, I, I, look, I will concede that, what did you call it, representational violence. I will concede that's a real thing. But that still, that just doesn't mean that language itself can literally kill well, maybe a little Wittgenstein can help. So oh, Wittgenstein, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, bear with me. So Wittgenstein, what Wittgenstein saw is that the distinction between speech and actions, it, that's not as strong as we like to think, right? The meaning of a word is necessarily connected to the way we act. So it's just a mistake to think that there are words and then there are actions. Okay, that, that's interesting. I like Wittgenstein, but what's that got to do with genocide? Well, well, think of a genocidal act as the final move in what Wittgenstein would call a language game. The game starts with dehumanizing representations. These representations shape perception and thought, and then thought culminates in murder. I still think you're making, you and Wittgenstein are making the same mistake. You're collapsing thought and action into a single thing. They're not a single thing. That's why you like him, because he makes the same mistake as you. (laughs) Thanks, Ken. (laughs) Well, obviously, I'm not going to convince you, but maybe this will. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to catalog language put to violent, hateful, and deadly use. Warning, this piece contains audio that some listeners may find disturbing. Liza files this report. A lot of times the impact of hateful words is diffuse and inchoate, but sometimes the consequences are explicit, easy to trace. In the lead-up to the Rwandan genocide and throughout the 100 days of murder, the attacks on the Tutsis were coordinated over state-supported radio. Notice to all cockroaches listening now, Rwanda belongs to those who defend it. And you cockroaches are not Rwandans. Everybody is up in arms to defeat cockroaches. So you see, you cockroaches have no way out. If we exterminate all the cockroaches, no one will judge us, because we will be winners. In Myanmar, years of threats of violence on social media are now being carried out in what the United Nations is describing as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. It's time to kill all Kalars, says one typical Facebook post from 2013, using a derogatory word for people of South Indian origins living in Myanmar. For the next generation, it says, burn all Muslim villages nearby. 
Today, there's evidence of massacres in which government soldiers slaughtered civilians by the hundreds and wrought every conceivable form of violence and cruelty. Hateful calls to action are all over social media, all over the world. And it's not just online. In Poland, this year's annual Independence Day demonstration, organized by far-right nationalist groups, drew estimated crowds of 60,000 people, marching under the slogan, Poland for the Poles. Death to the enemies of the homeland, red signs. With the dehumanizing language and the imagery of cloaks and red smoke flares and masses in the streets, you could argue there's a threat being made. And if a threat or a show of power is effective, the consequence is that the targeted side feels powerless. Here in this country, when the founder of the American Nazi party, George Lincoln Rockwell, threatened the freedom riders of the civil rights movement, his supporters made it happen. What we are out to exterminate is traitors to this country, and we are going to exterminate them. The white race isn't going to tolerate any more treason and race fixing in this country. He followed the Freedom Riders in a bus called Rockwell's Hate Bus. Civil rights activists were mobbed, beaten, and harassed. I can say, give me back our white Christian America or give me death. I don't care what they do, we're going to give it back. Today, white supremacists draw power from remembering past racial subjugation. The structure of America is sadly, sadly not based on racism. Christopher Cantwell, one of the organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, uses his podcast to foment racism. What we have is this ridiculous, hyper-inclusive, egalitarian narrative, a cultural communism, that says, oh, well, if, uh, if black people are getting arrested more than whites, then the security guard must be racist. Charlottesville is, of course, where the counter-protester Heather Heyer died when a white nationalist drove a car into the crowd. I hope with every ounce of my soul that every white person in America is like, get the f out of here, you animal. That's what I really want. That's what I'm going to do about systematic racism is to promote it and glorify it and make it look cool until it's like the new trend amongst the young people and, and being an anti-racist is looked at as being gay. It's easy to see the impact of these words on Heather Heyer, but what about everybody else? Most of the world will never hear the sound of Christopher Cantwell's voice. Do his words still touch them? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.